everyone, welcome to the Face of Science Podcast. My name is Tyler Puppets, and welcome back for the week of August 12th, 2018, the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this week, and I am excited that we are in the third week of the bread of life from heaven that Jesus has given us as we're working through the book of John. I'm hoping that you're having a good summer. I'm hoping that you are enjoying this podcast. Feel free to send some feedback my way. I would love to hear what you have to say about this. And I will also just put out a shameless plug for Working Preacher. If you haven't checked out Working Preacher for their commentaries, for their podcasts, for their discussions, it's worth a look. It's worth looking into and looking at the different things that are there. But I'm so excited to get into this week. I think there's a lot of really unique material to get into this week and some unique ways we can tie this back to science. So let's just jump right into it. This week, the gospel text is out of John, starting in chapter 6, starting with verse 35, which is a repeat from last week. It's where we left off last week. And then it continues with 41 through 51. So it continues with this bread of life that we've been kind of having this continual theme that we've been working through, and that we won't have to hunger, we won't have to thirst, But we get right there in verse 41, the people who are around Jesus kind of questioning, kind of asking, isn't this the guy that we know is from Joseph and Mary and all his brothers and all this? And Jesus kind of continues to pour into this idea of what he's trying to portray, that it's not just this bread of life that is temporary, that's not this consumption of food, that he's trying to provide something much deeper, much bigger than that. But I think this week, depending on what you've preached on in the past, I think there's some real gems this week in the first and second readings this week. The first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 8. And this is a really neat story with Elijah that I don't feel we really get to discuss and get into. And it's kind of stuck right in the middle of what has all been going on the last couple chapters. So to give you just a brief rundown, Elijah, this is kind of his coming out party, if you want to say that. He comes to the leader of Israel who had previously made an agreement to kind of unite and work better with the country of Judea. But they were worshiping Baal. And so there's this kind of conflict that comes through. The Lord tells Elijah to go to them, tell them about this, to kind of turn from their ways. He then predicts drought and he flees because they are out to have his head. So he flees to this wilderness that has a brook and has ravens bringing him food that he needs to be nourished and is there for three years. When the brook dries up, he then goes and does goes to northern Israel and finds this woman and her son who are about to have their last meal. He says, let me eat with you. And I believe that the Lord is going to provide the food that we need. It does. There's also kind of this very unique resurrection type story that we have with Elijah resurrecting the son when he is on the edge of death. And this then is coming kind of On the back end of this, he goes back and is talking with the king, trying to discuss these different things and says, let me show you my God versus your God. And that's where we have, where we have the altars that they have, the people who 
made their altar for Baal and are praying and praying and doing all their ceremonies to Baal and nothing's happening. He builds his, pours water on it, and God engulfs it with flame. And so he's trying to do all this and he's going to the kingdom where the princess, if you want to put it that way, is a religious leader of Baal and trying to tell her about all this. She's not real pleased by this. So again, he's on the run and this is where this story is placed. So it gives you a really unique opportunity to kind of dig into some of this stuff. I will say also, I'll try attaching some links down below to Ravens. There is some really cool, unique science stuff on Ravens and how intelligent they are, which I think kind of just provides some additional support if you're wanting to kind of dig into the story of Elijah and preach on that. Some really cool information there. But we have this where now you're seeing that this is the third individual time where God is providing for Elijah food for him to eat. So that he can continue on and is going toward Mount Horeb where he's actually going to kind of have a shift in his ministry where God's going to start to shift him into, I would call it kind of like an elder prophet at this stage of his life. The alternative first reading is 2 Samuel chapter 18 verses 5 through 9 verse 15 and 31 through 33. And we get the story of Absalom, David's son. And this, again, if you're kind of going through this, this is kind of a fast forwarding up to this point. But Absalom is trying to overthrow his dad. And we get this story of where Absalom has risen up a group of people to oppose David. And David, through all this, you can see the heart that he has that Absalom has done some pretty crazy things, including killing his stepbrother. But we still get at the end of this where he said, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, where we get this weeping, this deep emotion from David after he finds that his son, by going through battle, gets his head stuck in a tree and David's army kills him. So again, we get this, the mourning heart of David. But if you want to dig into the past of Absalom, there's some, again, some really dark, slimy stuff, we'll put it again, that we have from David's family still being worked out. And again, I think it plays into this narrative that we've talked about before, how we have King David and how great King David is, but even him and his family are human. And I think it's a really important point if you're going through this to kind of bring that out, bring out the human side of this. The psalm this week is Psalm 34, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to be sitting in Psalm 34 for this week and the next two. It's kind of a unique way to kind of go through a psalm that way. But again, it's this praise psalm that we're getting from that the Lord is going to continue to provide. And I'll leave you at that. But I feel the real meat and potatoes where I think you can really start putting the pieces together for me comes in the second reading from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through chapter 5 verse 2. And this is where we get into kind of this talking about working together as a community. I think one of the things that I find really interesting as I think about this and hear this is speaking truth to neighbors, be angry, 
But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which for me, I kind of think of that in the historical context of when you're sharing the peace. That was part of the reason for sharing the peace is so that you were making amends with people that you maybe had something go on during the week. So I think it's, again, kind of re-emphasizing that point and that because of us working hard, we're able to help others. And that's kind of what I want to think about. It's kind of coming from the back end of verse 28 that the labor provides so that we can share with the needy. So I was thinking about and struggling through how was I going to talk about this week. And I've been watching the last few nights on National Geographic. They've been having Yellowstone Live where they're going through and showing Yellowstone different events in Yellowstone, trying to do it live. I wouldn't say it's the best production ever. And I've been to Yellowstone. I've enjoyed Yellowstone. I ended up watching some things right after on wolves and watching things on other national parks and talking about the different animals and things there. And it really struck me that God intended us to work together and there's examples of this all around us. So, for example, for me, I am a person who really enjoys wolves. I've been to the International Wolf Center up in Ely, Minnesota. I would highly recommend it if you ever get the opportunity to go there that you get to be within inches of a live wolf with a thick piece of glass in between. It's really cool. And you learn to appreciate these animals. And it's through education and learning how like wolves hunt, learning how wolf pack dynamics work, that I think it's so beautiful to bring into the Christian faith. And for me as a biologist to realize how important they are for an ecosystem. So let me try putting all this stuff together for you. First and foremost, I would recommend if you've never read... Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold is by many considered the father of conservation. He was a man, I would say, who was at least 20 years ahead of his time. And after he died, his family published notes that he had made from all the different locations that he had lived in. And he had traveled around the U.S. a decent amount. And one of the ones that really sticks out coming on this side of the reintroduction of wolves in the Yellowstone is thinking like a mountain. And I think I've talked about this some before, where he predicts that if you're not having the wolf in these high arcing predators, that it was going to cause overgrazing and that it was going to cause for weaker ecosystems. And that's where if you follow the story of the reintroduction of wolves in the Yellowstone 20 years ago now, it's changed the ecosystem dramatically. Elk populations have dropped from probably an unsustainable 20,000 elk in the park, which was to the point where elk were dying in the winter because there wasn't enough food, to where now they're at a much more stable level of 7,000 roughly in the park. Wolves are maintaining now, they kind of have a baseline where they're maintaining at about 180 to 100 wolves in the park, which is super cool. The beauty of a wolf is it's not like what we are trained or have been told that there's these fearless killers that they just go and eat everything because they don't. They don't have the energy for that. Wolves are intelligent hunters. They hunt in packs, usually somewhere between like five to seven, but you can get a larger pack. And what's going to happen is 
and I'll know I can find video of wolves hunting elk. And the and the amazing thing with them is they they'll surround them if they can, and the whole first few minutes of the hunt is moving the herd. And they're just trying to kind of like a sheepdog would move the herd and just kind of see what's going on. And they're looking for the young, how well are the young doing, but they're also looking for the older elk, the injured elk, the sick elk, the ones who aren't good anyways. That will then be the target if they can kind of isolate that elk that will become their target. And then as a team, they bring down the elk. And then that's dinner. Wolves aren't really that successful. They usually are successful maybe 10% of the time. So it's this really cool dynamic. And when you start studying and looking at how wolf dynamics work and how even their hunting works, it's when you start to appreciate what they're doing. See, Wolves have an alpha male and an alpha female. They'll have a couple others around young wolves. But at some point, wolves usually around the age of two, three will leave the pack to try starting out on their own, which is a dangerous thing. But they have to work together. And it's all about working together to provide for the pack. Working together like a pack mentality. Working together. And as a church community as a christian community i think it's something that we can look at and work on another example would be prairie dogs prairie dogs are these little rodents probably about a foot tall make mounds all over the western united states but one of the things that they'll do is they have all these different mounds all over the place and they're kind of hanging out around there but if one of them sees something that is alarming to them, they'll send out an alert call to the other prairie dogs. And these prairie dogs then will make continue to make an alert call like they're making their own fire alarm system so that everyone's on alert. And one of the things that I found really interesting tonight that I was listening to about this is after one dies, there's kind of this weird thing where they do this like stretching and it almost looks like they're celebrating that they're alive. From what this was saying from National Geographic, the best that they can figure is it's actually retesting the system because obviously something went wrong with the system. They lost one of their den mates, and so they're checking the system. There's so much we can learn from that. How many times when we have something go wrong in the church do we actually then spend the amount of time it deserves to actually evaluate how do we make this better so this doesn't happen again? How many times as a congregation when we have these bigger members in our congregation pass away, do we sit down as a congregation and evaluate how are we going to pick up the slack? Who's going to start doing this because we can't assume so-and-so is going to do this anymore because they're no longer here? I think it's one of the hard questions that we end up dealing with is working together. The final example that I'll use for you, and it's something I have thought about for over a year now as a really good representation of the church. And I'm going to talk to you today about elephants. And one of the things that I think a lot of people who aren't maybe conservation minded is why do we care so much about the harvesting of ivory from elephants? And it's a good question. And the reason is, is the big toss, the big ivory, if you want to put it that way, is on elephants that are old. And if you know things about elephants they don't forget stuff 
So the example I like saying is two thirties don't equal a 60 in elephants. If you have a 60 year old elephant, they know how to survive a 50 year drought. But if you have two 30 year old elephants, they do not know how to survive a 50 year drought. They don't have the resources. You can add three of them together and they still won't know. So that's the wisdom to the herd of elephants. But the important thing with 30-year-old elephants is they have more energy. So they might be able to, along the way, find an oasis that helps give them that extra boost as they're moving toward where they need to go to avoid this 50-year drought. That's the church. The elders in the church are taught and talked about in Acts as teaching the youngers, teaching the younger members. And the younger members, I feel, and I realize I'm still very young in my faith, or at least I still look at it that way, that we still have things to provide and bring to the table that can help the elders, but I still look to them for guidance. I still look to them for their experience. That gives each of us a role. As you get older in the faith, more and more responsibility to help guide the ship. That gives you the responsibility to more and more give wisdom and be able to talk about your faith and be willing to share and be willing to talk about it. But being young in the faith, we still have to talk about our faith. We still have to talk about what we're going through, the struggles that we're facing. We might be able to find something that's different, that's new, that's exciting, and be able to bounce it off somewhat of wisdom and say, could you try this? See what you think about it. I've been thinking this has been good for me, but you have more wisdom than I. And it might be mutually beneficial for both of them. This is where the church thrives, is when we work together and build these communities, these communities of faith. I know for myself, with different things that I'm going through in my personal life right now, there's a lot of times that I'm holding stuff in. I'm not talking to people about it. To my own detriment, there's a few close people who know what's going on. Otherwise, I don't talk about it. I find myself more and more secluding myself so that I don't encounter people because I don't want to talk about it. And for me, knowing myself, it's killing myself. Because what I know that I need is to continue to talk to people and continue to share what I'm going through. But I also know that that means that I need also people around me who are willing to listen and willing to impart their wisdom. And that's the question I think right now as a congregation, as a church, are we doing a good job of sharing our difficult times? I think that'll be the Twitter question this week. Are we, or as you or we, we being congregations, struggling with sharing our difficult times. If we look at like the alternative first readings here with David, we are definitely seeing how he is a flawed human being and was willing to begrudgingly, but he did kind of come out with it and talk about it, at least with God and at least with his close court. And he's not perfect at it. But if we're going to praise God, we have to be willing to talk about the difficult things that we're going through so that we as a community can work together so that we can praise God. Not you and me as individuals, but we as a community. That's kind of what Elijah was working on with the tribe of Israel, trying to get them back together to work together as a community of faith. If you look at what is being talked about in this bread of life, it is that he is trying to provide the substance. The substance is 
being able to know your faith and talk about your faith, not just chasing food. What are different things that your faith needs to thrive? Are you being fed the way that you need to be fed so that not you can thrive, we can thrive? Because if you are thriving, it helps the collective we. We have to start looking at it as a we. We are going through this. We are taking this on. We have been given the task of sharing the message. So then we have to work through all the struggles. We're not referring back to last week. We are not the ones that once trouble comes that we should be complaining about it like the tribe of Israel that we're hungry and we should have just died in, in Egypt. It would have been easier. Nowhere in this book does it say that faith is going to be easy. We have to work together. And there's examples all around us of multiple different things working together. It's even at the cellular level. The last quick example I'll give you, at the cellular level, you have a mitochondria, which is the powerhouse to your cell. And it is very well theorized that mitochondria and your cell were two separate things that came together and are working together in you millions upon millions upon billions of times in your body connecting them cell by cell by cell by cell every cell has a mitochondria they were originally two separate things they came together in the cell so that it could work better and that all those cells come together to make you so that you can do the gifts that God has given you to help the collective we. It's amazing. We are designed to a cellular level. We see it all around us, things working together. And we see it here in Ephesians talking about working together as the body of Christ. It's such an amazing thing. It really is. So I'll wrap this up as we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science.